This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to leave diet culture behind and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 179 of Food Psych and Happy New Year. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I have a touch of the holiday bronchitis right now, so please excuse my scratchy voice. I've been uh, running around a lot, doing lots of holiday stuff, parties and, you know, seeing people and traveling and stuff like that and spending time with kids who, let's be real, are germ factories, right? I mean, very cute, obviously, very fun to spend time with, but total germ factories. But I hope you've had a good holiday season yourself, although I know the holidays can be fraught when you're recovering from diet culture. And that's why today I'm bringing you this episode with Colleen Reichman, who is a clinical psychologist, eating disorder specialist, and advocate for body liberation, fat acceptance, and health at every size. I thought this would be a great episode to kick off the new year because we talked about how to avoid falling prey to diet culture, the problem with Whole30 and other quote-unquote wellness diets, why true well-being is about so much more than food and movement, a really quick way to tell if your so-called lifestyle change is really a diet, why eating disorder diagnoses are often problematic, and so much more. It's a really great conversation, and I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener with the initial H who writes, Hi, Christy. Thank you so much for your wonderful podcast. I'm in my mid-40s and want to be done with diets. It's been a long process of mourning and reprogramming everything I thought I knew about myself. Diet culture is absolutely a life thief. Here's my question. How do I get over the envy I experience at seeing others who seem to be able to manage their weight through dieting, restriction, and exercise? To be honest, the only reason I'm choosing to give up dieting is because I'm exhausted. I simply don't have the energy or desire. The lies I created and was told by our society to motivate myself no longer work. I feel weak compared to those who are able to quote-unquote manage their weight. I just listened to your episode 145, and the question you answered had to do with a woman whose mother was able to manage her weight well into her 70s. I hear that, and I feel like I've failed. Help. Any words of wisdom would be so helpful. So thanks, H, for that great question. And before I answer, just my usual disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So first of all, I want to send you a ton of compassion and above all, just reassure you that you are not a failure. It's really so understandable and so common to be exhausted and done with diets and just not to have the desire to do it anymore. And that's really your intuition talking. That's your body and mind's internal wisdom telling you that dieting just isn't worth it. It's actually way more common to be in the position you're in of having dieting and the diet mentality just stop working for you than it is to be in the position of being able to continue restricting and overexercising in the long term. 
So as I've shared on the podcast a lot, many studies over the years have found that intentional weight loss efforts have an incredibly high failure rate. Many studies have found that that failure rate is somewhere north of 95%. And that number first came from a 1959 study by Albert Stunkard and Mavis McLaren Hume, for all you science nerds out there, called the results of treatment for the O word, obesity. And those findings were replicated and confirmed over subsequent decades, for example, in a 1979 study called outpatient treatments of the O word, a comparison of methodology and clinical results, and a study from the year 2000 called Can Anyone Successfully Control Their Weight? Findings of a three-year community-based study of men and women. And a 2007 review of the scientific literature on weight loss found that on average, people regain all but a couple of pounds on diets after five years, and that that number is actually likely to be optimistic because the studied weight loss interventions had incredibly high dropout rates, like 67%, I think is what they found in this review. And the people who dropped out of the studies, of course, were not the quote unquote successful ones, right? So that would make the results even less optimistic. So that study is called Medicare's Search for Effective O-Word Treatments. Diets are not the answer. And we'll link to all of these studies in the show notes for anyone who's interested in the science. But of course, trigger warning for all of these scientific studies and pretty much all scientific studies in general for some fat phobic language and some calorie and weight numbers and things like that. But the bottom line is that you're in the vast majority of people for whom diets don't work for myriad reasons, which include being just exhausted by the constant vigilance that dieting requires. And so that doesn't mean that you're a failure. It means that diets are the failure and that the human body and mind just are not made to sustain weight suppression long term. We know that from these decades and decades of research, and yet somehow the diet industry and diet culture keep convincing us that we're the failure, but that's just not true. When you look at the evidence, it's much more likely that the diet is going to fail you. So remember, you do not fail the diet. You did not fail your diets. The diets failed you. And we can see from the scientific evidence that the people who are quote-unquote able to lose weight and keep it off for more than five years are statistical unicorns, right? They're just in this tiny, tiny minority of people. And those folks tend to exhibit a lot of the same behaviors that people with anorexia do. And many quote-unquote successful weight loss maintainers who started out in larger bodies may just be people with higher weight anorexia. And I certainly wouldn't wish that on anyone because anorexia has serious physical and mental health effects no matter what size body you started out in or what size you are in the throes of your eating disorder. And I discussed that in episode 178 a couple weeks ago with Aaron Harrop, so I would definitely recommend checking that out. But the other thing that's really important to highlight here is that some people who seem to be controlling their weight by dieting and instrumental exercise actually are not. And what I mean by that is they would be in smaller bodies no matter what because they're genetically programmed to be in smaller bodies. But they've bought into the diet culture rhetoric that they need to be controlling their weight. And so they do all these dieting behaviors that actually have very little effect on their size, even though they've been convinced otherwise. I've seen quite a few clients for whom that was the case, and that's actually something that I've experienced myself. So I've always been in a smaller body, including as a kid and a teenager, which is why I wasn't subject to weight stigma and was allowed to remain an intuitive eater for all those years because no one put me on a diet and interfered with my intuitive relationship with food. And that's one aspect of what's known as thin privilege, which we talk about on the podcast. And thin privilege means the unearned privilege of never being told by doctors or parents or peers to lose weight. 
as well as the unearned privileges of being able to shop in mainstream clothing stores and fit into airplane seats and restaurant booths and all the rest, all those things that people in smaller bodies take for granted in society. Those are unearned privileges that people in smaller bodies get in diet culture, which really should be universal human rights for everybody, no matter their size. And so in that sense, thin privilege is really like male privilege or white privilege, where people with some arbitrary physical trait are given all sorts of extra benefits in society that really should be for everyone. Those benefits should be for everyone. And we're given these benefits at the expense of people who don't have that arbitrary physical trait. And that is so messed up, right? But anyway, getting back to my story, so even despite the thin privilege that I grew up with... Things changed for me when I fell into dieting and disordered eating in college because I suddenly deeply believed that my food restrictions and overexercise were what was keeping me in a smaller body and that if I let go of those behaviors, I would suddenly have a completely different body type. And spoiler alert, that just was not the case. So sure, restriction and overexercise suppressed my weight a little bit, and I don't know exactly how much because I don't weigh myself anymore. But generally speaking, I had the same body type then as I do now. I've had the same body type pretty much my entire life. I just had the false belief in the, in my dieting days that I was controlling my size with those dieting behaviors. And of course, not everyone has that experience because the world has size diversity where people's body types range across the size spectrum in a way that should be respected and celebrated instead of policed and denigrated like it is in diet culture. And so some people gain weight when they give up restriction and overexercise because that's what their bodies need to do to get to where they're programmed to be given the person's genetics and history of deprivation. And some people may lose weight when they give up dieting and make peace with food because that's what their bodies are determined to do. And other people stay pretty much the same size, more or less, no matter where they started out on the weight spectrum. Because again, size diversity is a real thing, just like height diversity and skin color diversity and gender diversity and neurodiversity and all the rest. And so there's really no way to predict what's going to happen for a given person when they give up dieting. But what we need is to break down diet culture so that no matter where people end up on the spectrum of human size diversity, whether after giving up dieting or just where they're born, they're given the same respect and equitable treatment that they deserve that other people get because of some arbitrary privileges that they have. But everybody deserves that same respect and equitable treatment. And people need to be allowed to be at peace with food in their bodies, no matter their size. And so, H, you mentioned the woman from the listener question in episode 145 who dieted in the name of quote-unquote health and was still in a smaller body at age 77. And I really think that she's one of those people for whom dieting didn't actually make any difference in her size because her daughter who wrote the question said she was never fat and even at 77, she still isn't. And it's likely that the daughter would know if her mom had been in a larger body as a child or teenager or whatever. And so the fact that she says she was never fat really indicates to me that this is a person who was genetically programmed to be in a smaller body and who's just so bought into diet culture's toxic belief system that she thinks she needs to diet in order to maintain her size or in order to maintain her quote unquote health, which is really just the new modern guise of diet culture that I call the wellness diet. So, you know, in summary, this person is probably not an example of diets quote unquote working and diets really don't work for the vast majority of people. So you're not alone in having dieting not work for you. And some percentage of the people for whom intentional weight suppression seems to be working are just people who would be in smaller bodies anyway, regardless of what they do or don't do with food and exercise. 
And a lot of people in larger bodies, for that matter, do excessive, extreme, disordered things with food and exercise because diet culture tells them to, and their body size doesn't actually change in any measurable way or any significant way. And it's really painful that people in smaller bodies get more unearned privileges in our society. And I'm trying to use my privilege as a platform to help educate people about this stuff and really help get rid of the privilege that I have and make it be human rights for everyone to be able to move through the world unencumbered and free. But, you know, the solution to that collective problem that people in smaller bodies right now do get more unearned privileges in society. The solution to that problem is not for individuals to try to shrink their bodies because, again, that's generally a futile and harmful pursuit, as the evidence really shows and as people's lived experience really shows, too. So the solution is really a collective one. It's for us to work to change the system so that people in every size body have the right to live peacefully, freely, and unfettered by diet culture. So I hope that helps. And if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you're ready to break free from diet culture in 2019, come join my flagship online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. A member with initials MO had this to say about the course. I had been listening to Food Psych for a long time and my relationship with food had improved, but signing up for the course helped me get to true and complete freedom from dieting and restriction. I'm so grateful I decided to sign up for the course. I didn't understand how good life could be until I began working on freeing myself from the restrictions I had been self-imposing for far too long. I never imagined that I would be able to answer the assessment at the end of the course as a true intuitive eater, totally free from moralizing food, but I did. I particularly liked how the course was self-paced, and I also am grateful to have lifetime access to the course because I know this journey will involve some ups and downs too. So if you're done with diet culture and you're ready to stop moralizing about food like MO did, which I know is more challenging than ever this time of year, come join the course and become a part of a wonderful community of people who will support you in making peace with food and reclaiming your life. You can learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by Poshmark, an app that I really love for anyone who's recovering from diet culture. Because on Poshmark, you can shop from millions of closets across America, which is a great way to make sure that you always have comfortable clothes that fit the body you have now without breaking the bank. And Poshmark helps you sell the stuff you don't wear anymore so that you can trade in those triggering clothes in your closet for some cash in your pocket, which is always nice. They have a really impressive range of brands all across the size and gender spectrum, too, including a great selection of plus sizes. You won't believe the deals you'll find on Poshmark, and shipping is super fast and easy for both the seller and buyer, and all is handled directly through the free Poshmark app. When you see something you want, make the seller an offer so that you can get the items at a price that works for you. And when you're ready to get those old clothes out of your closet, listing on Poshmark is super easy. Just upload pictures of your stuff to the app, set a price, and then ship them to the lucky buyer. Today, you can get $5 off your first purchase when you enter the invite code FOODPSYCH when you sign up. Just download the free Poshmark app, sign up, and then enter the code FOODPSYCH, that's F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, for $5 off your first purchase. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Colleen Reichman. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. It's actually been really interesting to reflect on how I would describe it. And what I came up with, what sprung to mind was, I just, I feel like it was very multifaceted and layered and I guess confusing at times and and pretty dynamic. Like it changed, 
you know, drastically from sort of one period of my childhood to the next. That's interesting. Why was that? So my mom was an amazing baker and cook. She still is. She's always had like a really deep love for food and she's always just appreciated um, good food and baking and to the point that family members really don't ever want to go to anybody else's house for the holidays, which she loves. And she's just, so she really instilled, I think that, I don't know, that similar love for food or appreciation for it and love for baked goods in my um, siblings. I have an older brother and a younger sister. And I think that is the first, she was the person who was, you know, showing us our, I guess, showing us how to relate to food first. My father was an FBI agent, so he was out of the house a lot more. And she really had, she was very committed to, you know, having the, making dinner every night and having everything be homemade. So when I think about, for example, elementary school, I think my relationship with food was very peaceful and intuitive. And I really attribute that to her, I would say, and her really wonderful relationship with food. And at the same time, she has also, she has a really, we have cancer in our family, a really strong family history of it, uh, especially on her side. So she's always been very interested in not getting cancer, essentially, and worried about it. So while she's always loved food and really baking and cooking, she's had, I mean, she kind of grew up in the same culture that we all did. So she always was interested in using food as medicine or you know, healthy food to promote longevity. So I think that, I mean, that was kind of always there in the background and it didn't impact me until I would say middle school when I started to, that's kind of when her, that value became apparent to me, probably when I hit puberty because I hit puberty before a lot of my peers. I was a little bit bullied for like, you know, the weight gain that happens when people hit puberty, that should happen. The normal weight gain. Yeah. Yeah. Important weight gain. Yeah. The normal biological thing that happens. Kids, yeah. Kids just a lot of times they don't know what to make of it. So they, you know, make fun of it. And it kind of, I just remember thinking about the fact that every, my family is, it's a slender family, I would say. And at that time, it sort of became apparent to me that that was really important or that seemed like another value and that it was very much tied up in food and health. Like you had to be, healthy and you're eating to make sure you stayed in this body size. And it was all important. And when I was in middle school, you know, I didn't really know why I guess it was important, but I knew that it was. That's interesting. And it it sounds like it didn't really occur to you before that because maybe you were shielded from it by the relationship with food, the sort of joyful relationship with food you had with your mom and also maybe some thin privilege as well that you just didn't have to think about that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think it was definitely a combination of the two. It was that she really enjoyed, she instilled that value of liking food, I guess, in me. And so I had that really intuitive relationship and then the thin privilege, you know, all throughout elementary school and and middle school as well. So I, I just wasn't exposed to those concerns until puberty and until I started getting a little bit bullied. I had... I didn't actually, I was very unpopular in middle school and elementary school. I was just painfully shy. So, so shy that my teachers, I actually like found a bunch of report cards or whatever a few months ago that said, Colleen has very good grades, but 
poor social skills and she picks a representative every year to talk for her. So yeah, I was like painfully shy. I had like maybe one friend in middle school and their family, they were all very, very small, like just a very petite family. And so when I hit puberty, I was uh, already bigger than my peers, but much bigger than that family. And that was my friend and my only really social outlet. So I think it just all kind of, yeah, it came together to just make me all of a sudden hyper aware of food and health and the thin ideal and all of that. So I think my relationship with food markedly changed at that point. And it's so interesting thinking about how like a focus on your weight and your size brought health and food into focus too. Because I think diet culture's modern guise of the wellness diet always makes those things out to be so separate. It's like, oh, don't worry about it. We're not a diet. This isn't about weight loss. This is about wellness and food and like health. And actually, because of how diet culture is and the beliefs that it instills in us from such a young age, like those things are so intertwined and you can't really think about one without starting to think about the other things too. Totally. I totally agree. And it's just, that's why that makes me, I would say clean eating and wellness culture makes me the most angry of the whole diet culture chatter because it's just, it's like such a wolf in sheep's clothing. There's such a, this is so you don't get cancer. Like that is a very that is a reasonable desire <laughs> to not get cancer. And, you know, so you take care of yourself. It's not about weight. It's about taking care of yourself and your health. But the health, sort of the simmering obsession with health and the thin ideal and the fat phobia, it's always, it's always been there. It's been in the background. So even I think kids, even I was able to quickly make that connection, I would say really subconsciously, because it's not like my mom ever focused on her weight or talked about weight to us, or verbally said anything related to weight. Neither of my parents did. But I somehow, it was just because I had been stewing in the culture for, I don't know, however many years at that time. And it's it's definitely there. It's so intertwined with the conversation about health. Yes, absolutely. I really identify with that too. Like I've shared on the podcast many times that I was sort of blissfully unaware or not really unaware, but blissfully free from diet culture in my own life growing up because I had thin privilege and economic privilege that kept me from going hungry ever. So I was able to stay an intuitive eater and like Mm -hmm. nobody took that away from me until I was 19 or 20 and I was in college and gained a little bit of weight and decided to lose weight. Like that was my Mm -hmm. first foray into diet culture for myself. But I'd been hearing other people talk about it so much my entire life. I'd been getting all those messages and just swimming in this water that we all swim in. It was like, oh yeah, like I know exactly what this is because my clothes aren't fitting. Now I decide that I need to lose weight. You know, like Mm -hmm. why did that even occur to me? Right? Like it's because of diet culture. Right. It's it's insidious the way that it really, it really gets into all of our psyches, even if we're not doing anything with it at the moment. Yeah. And I mean, diet culture can package it. However, you know, with the new package of the day, today's package, I think being wellness culture, but at the end of the day, yeah, it all comes down to that weight like all the fear about weight gain and thin equals healthy and yeah, the fear mongering. I mean, it's just, like you said, it's insidious. Yeah. So where did it go from there for you then? Did you start dieting right away or how did your journey with food unfold? 
I started dieting or I guess, yeah, restricting right away around puberty. That was pretty much the the start of everything, I would say, in terms of the eating disorder. I can recall a friend, that one friend that I mentioned that I had in middle school. By the end of middle school, I remember her saying to me, I guess I just became so quickly immersed and fearful of the weight I had gained that I remember one afternoon she said, I'm not going to reassure you that you're not fat anymore. Like, I'm really tired of having to do that. We talk about it all the time. So I, my sense is, and I don't really think I realized it, but that I got pretty obsessed pretty quickly and super fearful. And then on top of, on top of what was happening, the other thing in terms of my household that it, because we, my parents were pretty health conscious, when we were feeling upset or sad, exercise was, it was oftentimes the first thing that was mentioned as like, that's how you feel better. Like just go exercise. So I was feeling pretty bad around this time. And my mood was just very unstable as I hit puberty anyway. I was having to leave the classroom a lot because I was just breaking down to tears. And it was just a really difficult time in my life. I had no idea really what was going on, but that was when I first started my parents were trying to be helpful and they told me to exercise so that I sort of, that just kind of got roped into all of it at that point. So I started exercising for compensation essentially. And then yeah, restricting and trying different diets and just being very careful with eating choices. And I would say obsessive and it, it sort of stayed that way all throughout high school. I just really, really, restrict it kind of like bounce between different behaviors without being caught so to speak it sort of just flew under the radar but my relationship with food throughout high school was very fraught like I it's really compared to like elementary school it's a stark difference yeah that's really unfortunate and so common I think too like that time in people's lives is so triggering for disordered eating stuff. But it's interesting too that you said it flew under the radar and that you're just being quote unquote careful and like nobody flagged that as being a problem. Because I think that is so... Again, that's diet culture, right? It's like everybody's conditioned to be quote unquote careful about what they eat. And so even though it causes a lot of inner turmoil for people to do that, it's not something that other people in your life might necessarily catch or flag because they're like, well, that's just how it is. That's how everybody is. Right. Not unless there's noticeable weight loss, I think. Right. From from a thinner body. That's like really the only time that I think it gets flagged, unfortunately. I know that's the weight bias that's baked into. I've been yes. starting to like to think about lately and talk about the fact that like I think eating disorder diagnoses are problematic in a, mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Like, I mean, they're certainly helpful for things like insurance purposes and treatment and, you know, maybe a sense of validation too that someone, I mean, I think it can go both ways, that validation. There's like the validation of like, oh, I'm finally sick enough, quote unquote. And that's like the eating disorder needing to be validated, which is a problem. But then there's also the sense of just like the human being validated, like, oh, finally somebody sees me that I've been Mm -hmm. struggling with this for so many years and like nobody has said anything about it. And now I'm recognized that like there is actually a problem and that's explaining what's going on for me. But like, I think the idea of barring that piece of like the validation and the help that it can give for people in treatment or insurance purposes, I think like the labels of eating disorders are actually kind of a way for diet culture to like absolve itself of any guilt because it's Mm -hmm. like these people over here 
have an eating disorder and they're not like you. They're different. They're not like the average dieter doesn't have an eating disorder. So don't even worry about it. Just keep on doing your restrictive thing. Keep on being quote unquote careful. And instead of seeing that like, no, it's all of a piece that these people who are getting diagnosed might just have some constellation of factors that made them happen to get a diagnosis, not even necessarily that they're doing it more severely or that the behaviors are impacting their life any more than someone who's just like, quote unquote, careful or dieting. They might have thin privilege and have lost a lot of weight quickly, like you said, where it's like someone recognized it or whatever. There's all kinds of different things that might make someone get a diagnosis rather than someone else. I think it's just such a false dichotomy and we really need to look at the fact that it's all disordered eating. It's all a problem. Like No matter where you are in that spectrum, it's a problem and diet culture can't just wash its hands of you and say, well, that's not my fault. Dieting is fine for everybody except this tiny percentage of the population who happens to develop an eating disorder. It's like, no, dieting is a problem for everyone. Everyone has the potential to suffer from dieting and diet culture and we need to really acknowledge that. I so agree with everything. I'm like nodding my head along with you as you're talking because it's just, I mean, the eating disorder diagnoses, in my opinion, yes, there is the managed care aspect, which, oh my God, that's an entire <laughs> rant or podcast episode on its own, mm-hmm. what's going on with managed care. And it, and I do think the validation piece, I've seen a lot of people say that's important, but um, I just think there's so many reasons why the eating disorder like the specific diagnoses are not helpful. And I hear a lot of um, professionals talking about the quote unquote anorexia competition that you see on, for example, inpatient units or just, I guess, in the recovery community, anorexia is seen as the eating disorder to strive for. But I just don't think we can pathologize that because it's, it's reinforced by every, it's not an eating disordered mindset to strive for that diagnosis. It's a societal mindset. It's the only, it's, yeah, it's something that people really romanticize. It's what all the, you know, movies are about. It's what gets covered. It's what gets, you know, by insurance. It's what gets noticed. It's what gets people that, you know, the feeling of being quote unquote sick enough. And then there's the whole issue of atypical anorexia, which boggles my mind because it's essentially just, I think it's just our weight bias, like in effect, because I believe that atypical anorexia, if we're going to use that term, is the individuals, the small subset of the population of people who have eating disorders who lose an incredible amount of weight and are, you know, essentially emaciated. I think that's probably atypical anorexia. Everybody else who's maybe in larger bodies or or loses a smaller amount of weight, that's probably weight. We're missing all of that. Oh my God, totally. That is, yeah, that is the much more typical pattern, right? That's the much more typical way that it does show up is people are in larger bodies and don't lose enough weight to be considered to have the standard quote unquote anorexia. And so they're just lumped it, you know, either they're, if they're lucky, they get the atypical anorexia diagnosis or they're just given some brush off usually like, oh, well, you can't possibly have an eating disorder or, or, you know, miscategorized as having binge eating disorder, even when they never binged or they only binge secondary to restriction or whatever, that it's so problematic. It's such an invalidating system. I mean, like, except for, like you said, the subset of people who feel like that the label is really helpful and they feel seen. But I think the rest of the time, it's so invalidating and it's just 
also just like the, I don't know, the behavior cutoffs kind of make me, I don't know, cringe at times because it's like, who got together and said like two times a week of this behavior is clinical (laughs) one time a week or, you know, one time every other week, that's not clinical. That's not, you know, upsetting or distressing enough. Yeah. As though it wasn't upsetting and distressing to be doing those behaviors at all. Like... Right. It's like, yeah. Especially the compensatory behaviors, which, you know, it's like bulimic behaviors. Nobody's meant to do that. The compensatory part of it, like nobody's meant to do that. And that's actually very dangerous, even if you're doing it once a week or at all. So, right. And even if it's not medically dangerous right now for whatever reason, or you're not medically whatever, it's still emotionally dangerous. Mm -hmm. It's just a distressing thing to participate in. So it's, that's why I kind of, I like to say to people that I don't really like give a shit what you're diagnosed. I mean, I I care for managed care, of course. And essentially if you care a lot, then let's talk about it. But if you don't have a diagnosis, that's not really what's important. Yeah. That's so important for therapists to be in, to have that position because I think it's it makes it so much safer for someone to come to you seeking treatment for disordered eating whatever they think that you know it's like they could think maybe I have an eating disorder maybe I'm just kind of weird about food but like let me get some help for this and to have a therapist who says like yes let's help you with that is like leaps and bounds more productive and healing than having someone be like, well, you don't actually meet the clinical criteria for this. So actually it's no big deal, you know, just go on with your life, which sadly so many people, and I had that experience too, where it was just like, I was fully dismissed out of hand for not being thin enough or not having frequent enough behaviors to meet some criterion. Mm -hmm. So therefore I must be fine. It's like, no, it's causing a lot of emotional distress. So Mm, that was a clinician who told you that? Yeah, a couple of clinicians. I had the first one that I opened up to about it because, you know, again, it was like I was 20 when I first really descended into the eating disorder. And I started to recognize that I was having a problem because like so many people, it's like the restricting wasn't a problem until I started binging. And then I was mm-hmm. like, oh my God, I'm out of control, you know? And what I wanted at the time in my disordered mindset was, of course, to just be able to like stop the binging and keep the restricting, which is not possible. So the first like foray of trying to talk to someone about my eating disorder was talking to them about the binging. And I actually talked to my mom about it, who is a therapist herself, obviously was not my therapist, but she had some good insight. And she was like, even though she didn't specialize in eating disorders and still doesn't, but she was like, you really have lost a lot of weight and I'm concerned about you. And I feel like maybe some of these symptoms you're having are because you're not eating enough and you're exercising too much. Like, what about that? And I was just like, no way, la, 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 like not hearing it, covering my ears, you know? But I did kind of take that in, that planted a little seed. And then I was in therapy at the time and I took that to my therapist because my mom had said like, a couple things to that effect maybe. And and I was also going from doctor to doctor at that time, trying to figure out what was wrong with my body because I wasn't having a period. I was having all these other symptoms and hindsight and knowing what I know now, I'm like, oh, because I wasn't eating enough. Like it was restricted, you know, it was hypothalamic amenorrhea and other outcomes from restrictive eating. Mm-hmm. But none of my doctors caught it. None of them thought I was thin enough or didn't really ask the questions. And again, it was like I never got to that emaciated place where it was sort of culturally determined like, oh, you have anorexia. It was just like, I don't know what's wrong with you. Like it might be gluten, you know, and they're just testing mm-hmm. for a million things. So I was going through all this and I, I went to my therapist at the time and I was like, you know, my mom's kind of worried about me and she said this and 
she thinks I might have an issue with my eating or do you think I could have an eating disorder? And the therapist was like, I don't think you could. You're not a... Like the, the phrase she used, I'll never forget because it shows like how subjective the line is for people in diet culture. She was like, you're not a slight person. So and it's like, what? what does that even mean? Like whose idea is... Whose idea of slight? That's such a nebulous term. And like, yeah. why should that even matter if like if I'm having distress and like someone who's very close to me who's known me for 20 years is saying that she thinks I'm not eating enough, you know? Like that. Right. So yeah, it was just, of course, you know, in the the brain that I had at the time, the, the eating disorder mindset at the time, I was just like, well, I'll show you thin enough, you know, like I'll show you slight. I'm gonna keep doing this. Like I just, it just triggered me further into that pursuit of thinness because I was I felt like and basically what I interpreted her saying was you're not thin enough to deserve help which is unfortunately the message that so many people unintentionally give in this culture I don't think she was trying to hurt me or trying to like push me further into my eating disorder I think she genuinely just didn't know and was steeped in diet culture herself right yes and I really hope if there's like one thing I leave behind for my career or one thing I do as a psychologist, I really want to be the psychologist that gives the exact opposite message to that to everyone. Like I just, I just the slight thing is a ridiculous response. I mean, I'm sure she was trying her best, but yeah. that's that's such a oh my gosh, that makes me so angry. That's why when people you know talk about like if you know a client says, well, I you know I got my period back or I still have my period, I'll be like, that's awesome. And like, I really don't care that much because that's not necessarily like a signifier of anything, really. Mm -hmm. Let's focus on the really important stuff, just are you in pain, essentially. And that is that is so healing and validating when a therapist can do that. I think people need to know there are therapists like that out there. You know, there are therapists like you out there. And the one that I eventually found who didn't have any expertise in eating disorders either, but was like, well, tell me about it. Tell me about how you feel about your relationship with food. And basically, kind of like the question I asked at the beginning of this podcast, like she just was sort of open-ended about it and, Mm -hmm. and let me tell my story and empathized. And that went such a long way because no one had ever really validated me like that before in my issues with food. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge to be validated like that and huge, like you were saying, to be invalidated with the comments. No, it's awful. I'm so glad that you got to this place in your career too, where you're providing that for people, like that that validation. And I'm curious how you got there. Like, How did things unfold for you in high school and beyond? And how did you ultimately start to get healing? Well, in high school, it sort of went, it just continued along the eating disordered behaviors, but really flying under the radar for the most part. But when I got to college, that's when like the shit hit the fan, so to speak. I basically was, I mean, essentially I had really, really poor self-esteem looking back and I was still very, I guess, shy, I would say. And I wasn't read and I had an unaddressed eating disorder and I was thrust into an environment where there was constant partying and drinking and other individuals with their own eating disorders that I was around all the time and social comparisons. And I just, I wasn't ready. And I kind of like imploded, not kind of, I I definitely imploded. Freshman year of college, I just, just really, everything kind of escalated. I would say like eating disorder wise, but also depression wise, I just became very 
I used a lot of behavior usage, I would say, became very much escalated at that point, like from freshman year of college. And then throughout those next four years, I really bounced between having the eating disorder and engaging in it and losing a lot of weight, which is when people noticed, and then getting various different types of treatment or going to very diff- various different types of treatment. I just didn't know what to do with it all. The sadness and the feelings of unworthiness and you know everything that the eating disorder was stemming from. Yeah, it was just, that's what I remember from college. Honestly, college was just, like, there were, I had some really, you know, some bright spots. And luckily I had, I happened to have, which looking back I'm like this, I don't know how I got that lucky, but later on in college, my two best friends were females and very much, you know, quote unquote, normal eaters. Like mm-hmm. they had a really great relationship with food in their bodies for the most part. So I did have them and I leaned on that a lot. And I had so many like dietitians and therapists who would say, well, what are your, you know, the normal eaters, they would call them, what are they like doing and how can you emulate that? And don't you want what they have? And um, so that was really lucky. And I definitely think it, it was all like, it was important, <laughs> like all the different, you know, types of therapy and the different dietitians and the different experiences with the normal eaters. That was all really important. It just didn't, nothing changed no matter what throughout college or that's how it felt. Yeah. So it sounds like it was just a really painful time and you were using the eating disorder behaviors to cope. You also said that you were kind of surrounded with other people who were using eating disorder behaviors too. Was that part of it, do you think, that sort of fanned the flames, that environment of disordered eating just constantly pulling you back? Yeah. And I think that environment is what introduced me to certain behaviors that are pretty obviously alarming because, I mean, as soon as I got to college, I started drinking my weed and alcohol three or four times a week. Like I was drinking so much. And I found that when people were really intoxicated or, you know, in the dorms, they were engaging, they were more likely to engage openly in behaviors. And so it sort of just... I wasn't taught really because I knew about behaviors, but it sort of just opened my eyes to, I felt like, well, it's kind of, essentially it's normal. Like it's, it's not something to be super worried about because lots of, look at all the people who are also using these behaviors and they don't have to go to treatment. Like they're okay. Yeah. It totally normalized them. Yeah. Really unfortunate and sad. And I think a lot of, I've seen a number of clients who were in college or just graduated college in an environment like that, where it just kind of kept them stuck and kept them falling back into those behaviors because it was so easy and so normalized. And like for a dietitian and a therapist and, you know, whatever sort of treatment team these folks were engaging with to say, well, that's disordered eating. That's not normal. It sort of went in one ear and out the other sometimes because they were so steeped in this world where that was normal and that was seen as okay. And like, if they weren't participating in it or part of like the drinking culture, or even sometimes a part of the restricting culture, then Mm -hmm. they felt left out or like they were, they had sort of no place in that social milieu anymore. Yeah. It's almost like a weird, like messed up way to bond Mm -hmm. with with people with uh, oftentimes, I guess, other women. I remember one of the sorority houses had eat, drink, and be merry or something like that phrase painted on the wall. And, but they crossed over eat 
but that wasn't questioned. And I don't remember being like, oh my God, that is, a, you know, <laughs> that is so detrimental to our mental health. <laughs> I just remember like it was, it was normalized. That is yeah. so fascinating that like, I mean, I think sororities are such hotbeds of disordered eating too. It seems to be so normalized there where people will like actively teach each other disordered behaviors or like that sort of tongue in cheek way of being like, oh no, we don't eat, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. So just, toxic. It's so toxic. And it's still, I, I wonder if it was, if it's a little bit different now maybe because of like we were talking about the wellness diet, like it's probably... I don't know that that's would be in a sorority house now, like just the eat cross out because it's so blatant. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I'm sure that there are still habits for eating disorders and disordered eating. And it's probably just under the, under a totally different guise of we are take care of ourselves and try mm-hmm. we are eating paleo this week or probably something more along those lines. Right. Or like we're cleansing and detoxing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cutting out all kinds of foods, which is just the same thing under a different label. It's like now it flies under the label of wellness, but yeah, it's it's the same shit. Right. It's exactly the same. Just, yeah, twisted. So did you fall into the wellness diet stuff in college at all, or was it more just the, the straight up restrictive stuff? In college, it was very blatant eating disorder behaviors that were, I guess, restricting and... I wasn't really under any sort of impression that I was being healthy. I knew that I was being, I was, I knew I was sick. Lots of people were telling me that. Um, I just didn't really care. I remember at one point in college, I was told I would be like a chronic eating disordered person. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was the coolest. I mean, at that point, my sick mind, I was like, Ooh, yeah, like I'll be chronic. Like that's awesome. So it wasn't, there was no pretense of wellness until so I finally when once I graduated college I found about stronger footing in recovery and I never really know how to describe that because there was no epiphany and there was no like specific treatment episode or like provider it was sort of just like do you know the story of bamboo like do you know about bamboo not really no so that sounds like a weird question. I have a point. <laughs> There's a point. So bamboo apparently grows in this really weird way where you plant it and you water it for a year. It does nothing. You water it for another year. It doesn't grow at all. It does nothing. You water it for the third year. It does nothing. And then apparently it's either the fourth or fifth year after it's been planted and you've been watering it that it suddenly breaks through the soil and it grows like, I don't know, 10 or 15 feet or something in wow. a matter of weeks. So. The best way I can describe it is that I was bamboo during that time. And all of that, everything that was happening to me was everything good that people were trying to do for me. And that was all the watering. And then after I started to break through after college, somehow just, you know, something kind of clicked. And I wanted to, I decided to go to graduate school because I had sort of, I had my footing in recovery. I was feeling better. And I wanted to be a clinical psychologist that focused on research for eating disorders because I, I sort of just felt like that was, you know, working as a therapist was too close to home. Mm. I could do research for sure. So I got to graduate school and everything was fine, except for that it was graduate school, which is like the most stressful, competitive place ever. And I had, I struggled, I had a cohort essentially like somebody sort of a male in my cohort sort of bullied me starting from like year one 
I'm not really sure why, but to the point that I felt really ill at ease that first year because of that and a few other things. And there was one point where I had a supervisor who I felt sexually harassed me, who told me to wear like jeans more often because my butt looked good. Like it was pretty blatant sexual harassment from a superior, like an authority figure. Mm -hmm. And I remember bringing it into, you know, my peers and this cohort and the professors and telling them and sharing and being vulnerable. It was really like upsetting to me at the time. And I remember he said something like, you probably like assume everyone's sexually harassing you, but that's not how they meant it. Like really just like gaslighted it, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. And so, and there were other things like I shared about the past history of the eating disorder. And I felt like there was also, he kind of started saying that that like insinuating that I was quote unquote crazy. So essentially it just started to feel, it was just kind of a toxic environment because of that. And it started to feel super unsafe. So I turned to food, but in a, you know, I was, I figured I was part of this program and like I had some time away from my eating disorder. I didn't want to go back to it because once you get some time away, you're like, oh my God, that sucks. Like I can really see now how it is better when you're not in it. I feel like that was when the wellness culture boom was happening. So I, I kind of became really interested in wellness. And like, I remember that was time. I don't even remember how many years ago, but I remember the and wellness culture, like eating raw, you know, every few meals and that type of thing and watching, you know, all the wellness bullshit. That's what I sort of, I bounced to that because I was really, it's what I know. It's what I knew controlling food and my body. And so it was this, to me, it seemed like this really acceptable, so recovery-focused way of having that back. And then that's when I relapsed in graduate school, essentially. Yeah, it makes so much sense. I mean, it is so normalized that wellness culture is held out as like, well, this is healthy. This is the way to take care of yourself. It's like held out as self-care. And mm-hmm. so I think for anyone in early recovery or any time really in diet culture, it's it's so seductive. And if you don't know that it's just part of the same thing, that it has like the same root system as the rest of diet culture and eating disorders, even if like the little trees that come up from it look different, it's all the same thing underneath. But right. yeah, I think it's it's hard to tell that. And so it's easy to just get sucked right into it. Yeah. That's why I'm just so passionate about speaking out against wellness culture probably to my own detriment sometimes. I'm probably a little too passionate because it does, that's the part of my, I guess, narrative that makes me the angriest because I really do feel like I got like bamboozled by this whole wellness thing. Like I had strong footing. I was feeling, I was doing better. I mean, who's to argue that I wouldn't have just relapsed back to old behaviors anyway, because that's, I was seeking safety at that time. But the wellness, like it was just so provocative. And so maybe I had an inkling somewhere that something wasn't that cutting X, Y, and Z out and then moving or exercising like these amount of days. Maybe I had an inkling that that was sort of dangerous for me at that point. But I also was just, it was so like alluring and convincing. I was like, I'm not, this is an eating disorder. This is, and I hadn't even, the term orthorexia wasn't even on the radar. I don't think at that time. So I was like, there's no eating. And if I'm not losing weight, all is well, folks. Like, <laughs> I'm okay, you know? 
and it all was not well, obviously, <laughs> because it definitely turned into one of the harder, I think, relapses to like dig myself out of because it took a lot of coming to terms with how deeply unhealthy everything was that I was doing and that I was like, you know, desperately trying to convince everyone that was so healthy. And I remember like writing a, you know, having like a blog and mm-hmm. in graduate school about like raw food or something. So I was really committed to this idea and it just, it slowly took over again. And it took a lot of like digging myself out. And like I said, more almost complicated, confusing digging myself out. So I I just, and all I've seen since then is this whole movement getting more and more strong, like the clean eating movement, keto, paleo, and Whole30. Which, um, as people are hearing this, is probably going to be in full swing because this is coming out in January. So that's like, oh, it's going to be the heyday of it, I'm sure. Don't do the whole 30. Just <laughs> I want to put that out there. Please don't do the whole 30. It's, uh, it has such like, it, I think it was Alan Levinowitz on your show was saying, talking about the side effects that aren't talked about with these wellness, they're not called diets anymore, but these well, like these food I don't even know what you call them, like regimens. Mm-hmm. There's side effects that are, you know, deeply disturbing. That's that they're never mentioned. It's almost like prescribing a medication, but a potential side effect of the whole 30, a highly potential one is becoming really obsessed with, you know, foods and distressed and guilty when you do end up eating certain foods. And it's very, it's a high risk diet. So well said. And it is a diet too. Like I think mm-hmm. that's the other thing that it masquerades as not a diet. It's like, oh, this is about tuning into your body and connecting with the foods that make you feel good or don't make you feel good so that you can empower yourself. It's all this like empowerment rhetoric. And the person who started it, Melissa Hartwig, the one of the two founders of it, has herself admitted to have having struggled with, I can't remember if it was, she said a full-blown eating disorder or just like eating issues or mm. what exactly it was. But I feel like so many people in this wellness culture, you know, sort of helming the wellness diet in this day and age do have their own history of struggling with food and body image in some way. And they hold their wellness diet thing up as like, this is the way that I recovered, or this is the way to food freedom. Even the term food freedom is very much wrapped up in Whole30 rhetoric. Yes. So insidious. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I totally forgot. Yeah. That's like, if you search food freedom book, I think that's one of the first ones that comes up and that's like so terrifying because it's just the complete opposite masquerading as food freedom. And it's like I said, it's just so alluring. Like I don't blame people at all for wanting to try it or, or having tried it. So yeah, it's so provocative. It's so alluring. It's so promising. And it's under the guise of this is in no way eating disordered. Right. This is recovery. Yeah, this is health. And I think even, I mean, the people who, you know, I also have my own history of an eating disorder and also fell really hard into wellness culture when Mm -hmm. I was sort of beyond the most disordered part. You know, it was like I was in that middle ground of not fully eating disordered, but sort of recovering and disordered, but not full-blown anymore and stumbled very hard into wellness culture. And I see how tempting it is too and how like easy it is to say, well, this is not, I'm not restricting like I was before. I'm not using behaviors like I was before. So this is good for me. This is the path to freedom. 
And I think the founders of these diets are, you know, that call themselves plans and protocols and lifestyle changes and templates and, you know, not, they call themselves not a diet, but they're actually a diet. But the founders of these things, a lot of them having struggled with their own issues, I think are in that middle ground place of they haven't really stepped outside of diet culture. They haven't fully, they did recover from the obvious eating disorder behaviors, but then went right into this other disordered set of behaviors that is orthorexia without really knowing that it was or without knowing what that was, you know, or having help that consistent support of people who could say, actually, you're kind of doing the same thing that you were before with food, only now it's taking this form, only now it's under this guise. And that I think that's really dangerous both for the followers of those diets and also for the people, the proponents of them themselves, even though they're making millions of dollars, like good for them, but also they're harming themselves or keeping themselves stuck in pseudo recovery. And you said that you had a blog of raw food blog while you were struggling. And I know so many people do that sort of thing where they build up like a brand around their disorder, around their orthorexia. And then it's incredibly hard when they actually want to break out of that and are ready to recover. It takes so much more effort and so much more courage and and strength and willingness to just blow up what they've created. And that's really hard for anyone. Yeah, that's like, that's a really big ask to be, you know, what you've, if you've built an empire, or that's your livelihood to have to sort of discover and then move forward with the fact that it's essentially like, ruining your life and also the lives of other people. And it's keeping you very, very sick because even like I was in grad school trying to do research on folks with eating disorders, keeping a raw food blog. And I was totally like, this is in sync. Like this works. Looking back, I'm like, Colleen, come on. That's really, (laughs) that's so obviously problematic and just not, that doesn't make sense. But then it was so, I mean, it did make sense. Like it was just so easy to justify and it was so celebrated by everybody in the culture around me. And that's why I do think that orthorexia is, I think there's going to be just more and more, hopefully research coming out on that particular struggle um, or just more awareness because I do think it really creates a confusing, it's confusing. I think even probably for clinicians to help somebody get a grasp on this thing that is everybody, literally, literally everybody else is saying is so helpful and like necessary and is going to keep you alive is actually killing you. It's just such a, it's such a hard thing to come to terms with or to help somebody come to terms with. So I have so much compassion for, for anybody dealing with that or anybody stuck in wellness culture at all. Yeah, me too. It is. I mean, I think it's almost even in this day and age, like more prevalent in a way, or maybe equally prevalent as the sort of mandate of like, just watch it. Don't let yourself eat too much. You know, that whole sort of old school diet culture thing of like shrinking your body or managing your body size. And that's like still very much present. But also now we have just as common, but more insidious, this idea of like, well, everybody should be cutting out foods and everybody should be pursuing wellness and everybody should be like drinking green juices or whatever. And so, you know, again, it's sort of that like diet culture creating this little 
silo off to the side where it's like, well, these are people with really serious orthorexia and these people are over here. You all in the middle here, you're just doing wellness and that's proper. That's appropriate. Don't worry about it. But actually all of it is problematic. All of it is disordered because of course we want to take care of our health. Of course we want to like not get cancer or not, you know, stave off disease or manage diseases that we have already. And I understand that for sure. And I feel like so much of of that is just like the human condition and we can't change that. But I think the really problematic part is that all of it is so A, not evidence-based, like all of the wellness culture stuff that's floating around is really flimsy, flimsy evidence. And B, it's not taking into account the whole person. It's not taking into account your psychological needs, your emotional needs, your social and spiritual needs, like your needs to be connected and rooted in a community and how that actually has such a huge bearing on both physical and mental health over and above food. And that in fact, there is research showing things like internalized weight stigma have a greater effect on people's health than the food they eat. Mm-hmm. And stress has a greater effect on people's health than the food they eat. And if they're stressing about their food, they're actually increasing their stress levels overall and putting themselves at greater risk. And so I think that's just all so missing from the dialogue. And so we get this very natural human impulse to take care of ourselves and preserve our time on this planet and extend our lives or whatever in the way that we we all are sort of motivated to do. But then there's this these bullshit ways that are being sold to us that don't actually accomplish what they say they're going to accomplish. And also just fan right. the flames of like, you're supposed to be pursuing ever more perfection, quote unquote, in your diet. Mm-hmm. It's just this rat race that, of course, ultimately detracts from our the quality of our time on the planet. Right. And it's like genius marketing. Like everything you just said, I was thinking that's so genius on their part because you're literally capitalizing on people, not saying everybody is who's you know involved in like making diet products or wellness products are evil, but the industry is capitalizing, like literally capitalizing on people's fear of death, mm-hmm. <laughs> essentially. Like that's very genius because we're really it makes a lot of sense to be, like you said, it makes sense to be afraid of cancer and the ironic part about the whole my family and cancer is my mom who was so careful all those years and really invested and health was a value and everything she got breast cancer four years ago she was diagnosed and she when she was going through chemo dietitians were were telling her to essentially eat a whole 30-esque diet Mm. which blew my mind because it's almost just remind me of diet culture in general how diet culture is like oh diet and like stop eating as much or whatever and you'll lose weight and then when you don't they like again bamboozle you and they're like well you know you've gained weight but that's not our fault you just have to try harder so it yeah, was that's with, you that's on you that's not us yeah and with her it was like the messages i guess she had internalized were don't eat you know x y and z and you won't get cancer and then when she did the medical some of the medical field was like well you know, nice try. I guess it didn't work. So, so try harder to heal the cancer, you know, Mm -hmm. like it just, it was so, I remember I went into the health and every size Facebook group at that time and said, can anyone help me? Because these dietitians are recommending that my mom was going through chemo should do like the whole 30. And one of the dietitians in that group said, perhaps, perhaps the medical field shouldn't be encouraging people going through chemotherapy with their already limited 
psychological and physical and emotional resources to be pouring all their time and energy into controlling their food. Like Mm -hmm. it just sort of makes sense to not do that, but that was what was happening. So it just, that almost reminds me of a little microcosm of the bigger picture whole cancer, cutting out sugar because of cancer. Yeah. That's fascinating. That's, that's really upsetting. And I'm so sorry your mom has had to go through that. And I think it's, it's such a good example of how you can't stave off disease. There's maybe certain small things that you can do, but the sweeping claims of diet culture and wellness culture that if you do this, you'll cure cancer or prevent cancer or whatever it is are just not true. And the people right. who are the high profile people who have books about things to cure cancer with or some protocol that you use to cure whatever chronic disease you have, either they're just blatantly lying, which there have been cases of, you know, there's that high profile example, I forget the person, but who said that she cured herself of cancer with some sort of wellnessy pursuit and then was found to like never have had cancer in the first place, I think. Mm. And uh, yeah, which is just terrible. And then there's people who will pass away from cancer because they maybe it's a slower process and they're doing things that they think are working, quote unquote. And then actually what they really needed was chemotherapy and they didn't get it. There's that piece too. And then there's also the, the people who just capitalize on that fear where they're selling something as they're this doctor who treats cancer or they treat whatever disease and they're cherry picking from the research of like very tiny studies or short-term studies showing that in a lab or in a six-week study, XYZ food has seems to have anti-cancer effects or something and extrapolating a whole diet from that. And that is so irresponsible because it's not based on legit science and it's also leading people to believe in miracle cures when no such thing actually exists. Right. And capitalizing off of the terror that people feel when they're really sick or they've just been given this diagnosis. It's it's so obviously enticing and like wonderful to hear someone say, actually you can heal yourself with food. Like you don't have to go through this whole shitty ordeal with chemotherapy. Why would you do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you would I mean it's just so it's it's so understanding why it's so enticing, but incredibly dangerous. And my mom is she, you know, went through the chemo and she got double mastectomy. So she was she was a rock star and she's now like pretty angry about the sugar advice that she was given. So she's always in like chat rooms, I guess, like breast cancer awareness chat rooms, if there are such things. And she kind of like tries to speak out against, I guess there's just a lot of people who talk about, well, I read, you know, such and such article and, or I'm following this blog where she's, you know, choosing, opting out of chemotherapy and just using this supplement and this mm-hmm. way of eating instead. And she's really passionate about being like, get chemo like please get the treatment this is not what it seems like and it's a mirror if it looks too good or sounds too good to be true than it is so she's very involved in all of that at this point oh that's awesome that's good that she was able to use her experience to help other people maybe stop having the same outcomes or worse Mm -hmm. but oh yeah it's just rampant this phobia of sugar and gluten and dairy and whatever else you know grains in general everything that gets demonized by the wellness diet is so compounded anytime someone has an illness or cancer like it's it really 
I get it, like that people feel desperate for something to try and to do. And there's so many people out there who like credit food or eliminating foods with curing their cancer or other diseases. Meanwhile, not giving credit to things like chemotherapy and Western medicine that they were also taking, you know? So I think that's kind of an interesting thing too, is people are so quick to jump to giving food or eliminating food the credit rather than looking at the whole picture. Right. And all of it, just as a side note, is the other really important thing to note is that it's so, it hinges on privilege. I mean, the whole clean eating movement in the wellness culture, it's very much, I think clean eating is so much more about like class than health in any way. Like it's just so, it's so inaccessible if you're not of a certain socioeconomic status, like the foods that you're encouraged to eat and these supplements and the people that you're seeing promoting it. It's just, it's not, it's so inaccessible to so many people. And that's a real problem. Like we should not be promoting the epitome of health, which doesn't have to be a value anyway, Mm -hmm. but we shouldn't be, you know, really, is it helpful to be promoting the way to health is a way that only a small subset of the population can actually afford. Like it's just absurd. The mortgage light like receipts from Whole Foods. Oh, I know. It's crazy. Know. It's, yeah, it's absurd. It's ridiculous. And I think that that also is like another clue as to how intertwined wellness culture is with diet culture and why the wellness diet is just the new guise of diet culture. Because to me, like the whole diet culture as a system of beliefs, one of the hallmarks of it, one of the core beliefs of diet culture is that there is a certain way to health or a certain picture of health that is, you know, it's an oppressive picture of health, basically. It's like Mm -hmm. white, able-bodied, thin, cisgender, like young, all of this stuff, right? And that's held up as the epitome of health that then everybody else is supposed to aspire to. And if you don't attain that idea of health, then you're stigmatized. That is such a part of diet culture's core belief system. And going back to the 1800s, you know, when it first, when diet culture first emerged, there was like Mm -hmm. racist roots and sexist and misogynist roots within diet culture and homophobic, you know, it was like all there from the start. We see that. So it's so blatant, I think, in the clean eating movement or other related wellness movements to like paleo and keto and all that stuff where it's like, you say that it's not about weight loss or not just about weight loss, but who is being held up as the symbol of health in this way of thinking or this this diet that calls itself a lifestyle change like who's being held up as the picture of health it's certainly not the poor larger bodied people of color that can't afford green juices it's never the the folks who are more oppressed it's always the people with the most privilege right yeah they're always held up that's that is the face of wellness culture essentially which is obviously a problem and yeah like you said going back to Yeah, because you've been tracing the roots, right, for your book, which must be so fascinating. Oh my God, it's so fascinating. I feel like there's a whole... Well, and other people have written whole books about this too. So like, I really... Maybe for my second book, I can can really delve into it because like, I actually had one chapter to start. It was supposed to just be like the first chapter of my book. And then I expanded it so much that it's now two chapters. And we're going to see what my editor says about that. But um, (laughs) it just was like, I can't stop. I can't stop writing. This is so fascinating. Like there's so much 
interesting stuff that I think is important to put in there because that really exemplifies where diet culture comes from, like the root system of diet culture and what we're seeing today in the wellness diet and all the the modern manifestations of diet culture. So yeah, it's it's so fascinating. Like it really is just goes back to so much racism and sexism and like policing of bodies and even like the ancient Greek roots of the word diet. I don't want to like give away my whole first chapter, but like <laughs> that is I'm I'm tracing that and that's super interesting. So yeah, it's there's a lot. But I think it's kind of like an a good litmus test of like, is this thing, is this lifestyle change that I'm following actually a diet to say like, and I think Virgie Tovar actually made this point in a piece that she wrote maybe a year ago or something. But it, you know, if you look at the people who are held up as the pinnacle of health in this protocol or plan or lifestyle change or template or whatever that you're following, are they all pretty much, generally speaking, thin? Are they all pretty much white? Are they pretty much able-bodied, cisgender? Like, If you look at the people who are representing this diet and they all look a certain way, that's a good clue that you're in the presence of diet culture and that it's not actually just about wellness. Mm, I love that. Yeah. Such a good point. If it were really just about wellness, you can't tell... like actual and I hate the word wellness anyway because it's just yeah. become so twisted but like if it were just about well-being you know you can't tell someone's well-being by looking at them so a true well-being plan or whatever i mean even plan is so diet culture at this point but a, a true path to well-being or true pursuit of well-being would probably show a wide diversity of body types and sizes and identities and all of the stuff. Right. And it would be not all about food. It, like food and movement would be such a small subset of it. Like if it was yeah. true, if it was a true like quote unquote wellness plan, that would be such a small subset. There would be so many bigger, important things like, I don't know, relationships, spirituality, just being happy, letting yourself be flexible. There would be so many, so many things. And all we see is just the food and, and movement for the wellness culture. Totally. That's it. Yeah. It makes it out to be that wellness is entirely hinged on what you eat and how you move your body, which is total bullshit. <laughs> like they're nothing right. could be further from the truth. Yeah. And those Absolutely. things are such a small portion of actual health measures, you know, when you look at population level health, the amount that could be attributed to individual behaviors and specifically like food and movement is only like 10% and individual behaviors is like 30%. So yes, I use that statistic a lot now in the work that in my clinical work, just to try to shine some light because the interesting thing is that through my graduate school training, that type of statistic that was never really mentioned, even as I learned about disordered eating and like the pitfalls of diet culture. That was all stuff that I learned later on. I was like, where was this when I was, where was this when I was doing the training? And when I was getting the education, it just wasn't there. So I had to seek it out and I want to give it to as many people as I can, even if it's, you know, they're not going to use it at the moment or it's just kind of goes in one ear and out the other, I still want to give it to people just in case it can be helpful. Yeah, no, I think that's a great like seed to plant because eventually maybe it'll germinate. I'm curious to hear how, you know, in this remaining little time we have left, just like how you were able to 
come out of wellness culture and the wellness diet and get into the work that you're doing now? Because I think that's an important part of your story too. Yeah, I just, I mean, I went, got more like therapy and treatment. I was like a professional patient at that point. So, because it just got, it escalated, of course, to the point where it was just getting in the way of life. And I also, at that point, by that point, I had this thing in mind, I want to work in this field. I didn't want to do clinical work, but I wanted to do research. So I actually had a larger, something more important to me than food, my body, health. Like it was, it was just a bigger goal. So it was that sort of round of recovering was my final round, so to speak. And I I really attributed to that larger goal. And it took me a few years of being in solid recovery and just doing better and feeling better before I did did my toe in clinical work, even just actually working with people who, who were struggling with negative body image. It took me a few years before I did that. But then when I did, it was really towards the end of my graduate school career. And I just loved it. I was, I mean, it just, it really, the work just clicked and it felt like soul work almost, like a calling, which I think is really common, which is why so many of us in the field, dietitians and you know therapists have had histories of our own disorder eating or eating disorders, because it's just so common to, I feel like it's very common to be in the fire for a while. And then once you get out, you're like, well, let's run back with buckets of water because nobody should have to go through that. Like, let's help. Yeah. That's what it felt like. So then I did my, all of a sudden I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. So I did my pre-doctoral internship and my postdoctoral fellowship years at different inpatient eating disorders units which I absolutely loved. And during that time that I was acquiring that education, and then when I first got into the field as well, that's when I discovered health at every size. And all of that was the final click for me. That Mm -hmm. makes sense. Like a lot of what I was doing earlier on felt like it was just missing something really important. Like I was trying to help people heal from eating disorders while also without addressing, well, first of all, that so few people were being identified, so few people were getting the help. The field was very much focused on weight as the big symptom. So that felt kind of sleazy. And then also just the fact that we're sending people out back into the field, sending people out into the culture that says, but lose all that weight or what you were doing was good. Or it just, it felt very much dissonance for me or something until I discovered health at every size. And then I felt like I had some peace and some like resounding, this is what I can give to people. And this is how, if we're going to truly heal, if true healing is possible, it's going to be through this lens and this mentality. That is so beautiful. I feel very similar actually that, you know, it wasn't until I discovered health at every size, also through eating disorder conferences and trainings and stuff that I was like, oh yeah, this is how you recover. <laughs> like This is the way to be totally outside of the system that created the disorder in the first place. Right. Because it is like, it does feel there is something kind of sleazy about it where... You're like, yeah, okay, recover to this point, but don't go above a certain weight and you should always be managing your weight or whatever. Like it's it's just icky and it's and it very much contradicts what the supposed principle of recovery should be about. 
It does. And I remember like helping an art therapist once do the body tracing earlier on. And I remember thinking I couldn't put words to it at that time because I was still very new and everything. But I was like, why is this so messed up? Like there's something so wrong about this. Mm -hmm. There's something so the words were that I was looking for was that we were essentially colluding with the eating disordered and diet culture mindset by saying, you're, don't worry, like you're not as big as you think you are. Like, shh, it's okay. You know, it's okay. We were really colluding with it. And then when I, yeah, discovered health at every size, I think that gave me the language and the understanding to then address those things and say, I'm not going to do this. Like, I need to, you know, join this group of people that's really looking at it through this lens. And that, that really does feel like, if there's an MVP player of all the eating disorder recovery stuff, it's health at every size. Oh, like, yes. That is so true. It's really the the clincher of all of it. Because like, yeah, the, otherwise it is just this pseudo sort of halfway recovery that really does collude with a diet culture mindset of like, don't worry, you aren't as big as you think you are, which like, I understand where people are coming from and wanting to do an activity like that because oftentimes people with eating disorders do have such a distorted view of their bodies where they believe they're genuinely in a larger body and they're very much not, you know? But like, also, it's completely fucked up to be like, oh, don't worry, you're not in a larger body and that that's why you should recover or something as though that would make it okay for them to recover. Whereas someone who was genuinely in a larger body would not be okay to, to recover or stop restricting. Right. And anytime we're assuring someone that they're not that big or that they don't weigh that much, even as like professionals in eating disorder treatment, I feel like anytime we're doing that, we're profiting off of fat phobia or we're encouraging somebody to profit off of it. And also encouraging fear mongering, kind of putting that background noise back into the fear mongering of weight gain. And it's just, I, yeah, I understand where it came from too. And I'm sure the person who created that, you know, the body tracing had really good intentions, but I just, oh, I think it does so much more harm than good. Like so many other techniques and <laughs> treatment you know, stuff that we've used in the past. Yeah. And I'm sure that they had the best of intentions, but they were also coming from diet culture, right? Like so many mm -hmm. clinicians do. It's like, if you can't, you can't really see your way beyond the culture that we're all swimming in that creates eating disorders, then of course, you're just going to do stuff that reinforces that, you know, and to like really step outside of diet culture is a huge undertaking and takes a lot of self-reflection and personal work on the part of clinicians as well as anyone recovering. We're all in this together and clinicians can only take people as far as they've gone themselves. So if they haven't done the work to say like, now why should it matter if someone's body really is larger or not? And why, why do we need to constantly reassure them? What's the value of that? Or what message does that send? If you haven't spent the time thinking about that, I can see why it would just feel like, yeah, this is help, a helpful activity. It's just so much of the sort of traditional eating disorder treatment really is steeped in diet culture because that's where the people who created it are coming from. And clinicians are people too. Yeah. That's why among other things, when I, I really trust health at every size providers, um, that's who I refer to because I just think you need to, if you're working in the field in any capacity, you need to have done your own work in terms of 
really unpacking your own biases because all of it comes into the room when you're sitting with somebody. It's all in the room and it will impact the treatment. It will impact your perception and your approach. So you, you have to, to do ethical treatment in some way, unpack that for yourself and you know, continuously challenge your own biases and really work on that if you're going to do good ethical treatment. Yes, oh, absolutely. That is a good note to end on, I think, because I think anyone listening who's a clinician can take that and mull that over. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and also tell us about your work and where people can find you and learn more about what you do. Sure. So I actually, I am moving to Philadelphia, I guess around the time this comes out. So I, yeah, I currently work at the College of William Mary, the counseling center. I'm a psychologist here. And then I have my private practice, wildflower therapy, but in Philadelphia, in January, I'm moving to Philadelphia and I'm going to be going into full-time private practice, I think. That's exciting. Yes. So that's where I'll be. And you can find me on ColleenReichman.com, which is my website. My Instagram account is at Dr. Colleen Reichman. And I really love to write lots of ranty posts about wellness culture. So uh, I love them. Your Instagram <laughs> is awesome. <laughs> Thank you. I have like so much fun with it at this point. It's just a huge venting session. So oh, that's great. Yeah, we'll put links to that in the show notes too, so people can find you and go follow you and get those great rants. They're all so good. Yes. Yes. Please follow. Please comment. I love interacting with people on Instagram. Yeah, me too. It's a great, great medium. Oh, well, it has, you know, certainly has its uh, ups and downs, but right, <laughs> the, true. The anti-diet culture on there is really on fire, I think. Yes. Yeah. It's so much fun. It is. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's really great to talk with you and I'm so glad we got to connect. Thank you so much for having me. This was so great. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Colleen Reichman for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you're looking for some practical wisdom to help you in your own anti-diet practice, you can grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Just go to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, plus a full transcript, go to christyharrison.com slash 179. That's christyharrison.com slash 179. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please share, rate, and review to help other people discover us and spread the anti-diet message. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, you can easily share by clicking the three dots at the bottom right corner of the screen and then click share episode. This episode was brought to you by Poshmark. Poshmark is the easiest way to buy and sell fashion items. Download the free Poshmark app to score amazing deals from tons of brands and list your own items there and wait for the offers to roll in. Shipping is fast and easy and all is handled directly through the app. Today, you can get $5 off your first purchase when you enter the code FOODPSYCH, that's F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, when you sign up. A big thanks, as always, to our editor and engineer, Mike Lalonde, and to my team at Food Psych Programs, including our community and content associate, Vinci Chue, our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasek, and our transcript assistant, Kiara McClellan, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into creating this show for you every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. And the music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put-